It's a blessing this morning to have Kyle speak with us. There's a little bit of story here because last night, you know, I was at home and I get a phone call about 830 and it was Kyle. And he's like, brother, my house is filling with water. I don't know. We may have to go to a plan B. I don't know if I'm able to be there tomorrow. And I could sense his stress. And and I was like, all right, don't don't worry about Kyle. We can we can do something. And 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 so we we hang up and then I instantly thought, had that sense of regret, like, oh, no, I just put all the stress on me to preach. <laughs> so I do what any good, good person would do. I called Dwayne. <laughs> He's like, Dwayne, so what's the plan? <laughs> He's like, well, I'm in Branson. Oh, boy. So I, I started, to, started to prepare a sermon. Not going well, you know, and I go in, talk to my wife who's sitting at the table painting. And I was like, honey, come, come save me. I need some help with this. And she's like, you dug that, that grave. You're, you're doing this on your own. And so, so uh, I started to prepare. And then two o'clock last night, Kyle texts me and says, don't worry, I'll, I'll be there. And so he's been up really late. He's probably pretty tired. I am. And uh, he's got a lot going on in, in, in his life right now with his house and, and also preparing to speak for you guys. So it's, it's truly a blessing that this man is dedicated and ready to preach because you would have been stuck with me and it was not looking like a very good sermon. I can tell you that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Kyle and his, his uh, dedication to serve you, Lord. And I know there's uh, water filling his house and... And all this stuff went around in his life. But yet here he is this morning to serve and bring glory to your name. Um, I just lift him up and give him the courage and boldness to speak your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. As always, I'd like to wish that you guys had a good week. I hope you have a good one in the upcoming one. It's good to be here today with you guys. As Forrest said, yesterday was a little busy for us. (laughs) But... It was, it was funny, I was talking to Brandon yesterday, and he said this line that I kind of thought about throughout the night, and it is, are we ready for what we pray for? You know, we've been praying for rain, and uh, was I ready for the amount that I got? The answer was no. <laughs> and uh, But then if you think about that, kind of keep that in mind, because we're going to talk about Jesus and the harvest today, and if you pray for the opportunity to be able to witness to someone to be able to sow a seed in their life or even walk alongside them as the Spirit helps them grow in Christ, are you ready for the opportunity that's going to be brought to you? Are you ready for the when and are you ready for the how and maybe even the where? So turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4. Now, as we've noticed from Forrest's teaching last week, the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter is focused primarily on the harvest. And one of the central people that is, that is, uh, their stories being narrated in this chapter is a Samaritan woman. Now, Forrest gave a good message last week about the woman at the well and where do we get our joy from? What well are we taking our joy and happiness and meaning from? Is it from Christ or is it from the things of this world? But I'd like to give you a little bit of a background on the Samaritans so that we understand the tension that's going on there and why this is so pivotal that Christ is talking to this woman and eventually why he even stays and goes into the village. Now, the Samaritans initially came from the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was one kingdom. And then after Solomon died, there was a dispute over taxation 
And so the kingdom ended up splitting. One of Solomon's officials named Jeroboam, while Solomon was alive, he got a little too powerful and he fled to Egypt. And then after his death, he came back and he started a rebellion and went against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And he took ten tribes of Israel with him and they split and he had the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom, Rehoboam's kingdom, was comprised of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Now, eventually, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that these kingdoms, the north and the south, were eventually conquered. The south was conquered by the Babylonians, but the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And you can read about that in Second Kings. Now, what happened is when the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes, <clears throat> the northern kingdom, they pulled the people out, but they also brought their people in. And they left a remnant there of Jews and the Jews who were in the northern kingdom intermarried with the Assyrians. And the people group that came out of that merger was the Samaritans. That is where the Samaritans came from. Now, as you continue to read, you see them mentioned every once in a while. But I was looking for the kind of the first time where the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews began. And what I came across was in Nehemiah chapter four. And what you see is that. Nehemiah is a prophet and he was under the Babylonians in the southern kingdom and he left and he wanted to go back and begin rebuilding some of Israel. And in the fourth chapter of Nehemiah, you'll see that there are three men that oppose Nehemiah in this while he's building a wall. And one of them has an army of Samaria under him, an army of Samaritans. And so that is the first time that the Samaritans and the Jews kind of clash is with the rebuilding of the old kingdom. <clears throat> and that creates the tension. And then also the Samaritans, since they were partially Jewish, they had the Pentateuch, but they did not have the teachings of the prophets or anything. And so when you took Judaism and you took the Assyrian religion and you merged the two of them, it created this religion that was almost unrecognizable that the Samaritans followed. But even in that, there was still this understanding of a Messiah or a Savior. Which is why it's so interesting as we read through here, we will see them declare Christ the savior of the world because that was still held on to throughout all of that. So if you haven't already turn to John chapter four, we're going to begin reading in verse 31 and we're going to go all the way through 42. John four thirty one. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields and they are white for harvest. Already he who weeps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. 
And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I kind of keep that in mind, the savior of the world. When you read through the Old Testament prophets in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 46, verse 6, Isaiah states this. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Make you a light of the nations. My salvation shall reach the end of the earth. And it is too small of a thing that you should rise up the tribes of Jacob. So what is happening right now in this instance where Christ is with the Samaritan woman? Kind of reflect on what is happening prophetically. So we're at Jacob's well, right? And Christ is gathering one of the lost of Jacob. He is gathering a Samaritan and pulling her back to the fold. And he is also doing this on his own. The Jews that he came with are off. And so he is talking to this woman. So he is in a way left the 99 for the one. But on top of doing this, this lost people are also the first people to declare him the savior of the world. Not the savior of Israel, not the savior of Samaria or the Jewish savior, the savior of the world. And also Isaiah mentions the light, which we've talked about on several occasions John constantly keeps referring to the light and the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So all three of those things are happening in this moment from from that verse and chapter in Isaiah. He is raising up and restoring Jacob. He is the light in the darkness, and he is taking his salvation to the ends of the earth as the Gentiles declare him. Now, as we continue to read through there, we came to the harvest and Christ mentioning the harvest. And that's very pivotal. That's something you're going to see constantly being brought up as we go through the gospel together is the time of the harvest and sowing and reaping and all the aspects of it. Now, some theologians state that there was a a visual aspect to this and a point that Christ was trying to make, because if you look on a Jewish website or an archaeological website or even a, a clothing museum. I know that sounds weird. There actually are such things. <laughs> and you look up Samaritans and the way they dressed. Even to this day, you will see that men and women mostly dress in long white linen robes. And so a wheat field, when it is mature, the heads are white. So if he was saying that the wheat is ready for the harvest, and these disciples turned and they saw this sea of people dressed in white... They would have gotten the visualization that these are the people that are ready for the harvest. But what most theologians state is going on here, and this is kind of the view that I would take as well, is that Christ is saying the harvest is ready. Do not slack on this. And that saying that he is saying there's four months until the harvest was a saying that was in the communities at that time that kind of dealt with procrastination, I guess you would say. You would sow and then you would say, well, there's four months until the harvest, so there's no need to worry. If you needed to fix your cart or repair a wall so animals didn't go in as the plants matured or maybe get a new scythe or find new workers, whatever, 
Well, you could always put it off because you had four months until the harvest. But then as you would keep going through that, eventually you would be a few weeks away and then it would be too late. So Christ is saying now, look now, the people are here and they are ready now. And I got it. I don't know if you would call this an opportunity to live this out, but Thursday morning at work, I came through the door and there was a woman having a conversation and she was talking about how she was creeped out because of the the things that are going on and the things that might be happening. And she was trying to remember when she was a little kid what was being talked about in Revelation and if all this stuff is lining up. And so we kind of started talking a little bit, you know, about all the red heifers that are getting sent to Israel and all these things. It's it's interesting if you look it up. But the more we started talking, the more I started reflecting on what was happening and the lives of Nicodemus and the disciples and how it just needed to be simple. And so I started reminding her that it is faith in Christ that saves you. It is just faith in Christ. And as we continued, the conversation started changing. It went from these technical aspects, these things that are unknown to these things that could happen. And then it started getting really simple. Well, do I have to be baptized to go to heaven? Do I have to go to church to get to heaven? My husband said I'm a good person and he can't understand why God would send me to hell if I was a good person. And I kept saying it is faith. It is faith. And I kept walking with her. And then something odd started happening. The woman in the cubicle next to her got up and came over and joined the conversation And then the man at the end of the row got up out of his cubicle and came over and joined the conversation. And then our boss came out of his office and came over and joined the conversation. And then the electricians who were installing the brand new security system came and they started walking by slow. And the more it became about faith in Christ being what saves us is faith in our Redeemer. The more people started coming and it was the. This is not what I expected at 7.48 in the morning on Thursday, you know, to be a part of that. But but that is what we see happening. Simply going out and being prepared for the harvest, wherever it is, can take us down a path that we would never, ever expect. And pray for that woman if you if you think about it, because she is really seeking hard. And I hope that the Holy Spirit enlightens her. But but the woman In this instance, the Samaritan woman begins doing just this. She takes off and she begins going into that village and telling the villagers about her meeting with Christ. In a sense, she's giving them her testimony. He knew these things about me. He knew what I had done with these men and that I wasn't married. And I thought about that and I was thinking, you know, the fact that she was telling them about the intimate manner in which Christ knew of her, and she was so grateful for that. Are we grateful for that as well? Are we grateful for the fact that he knows the sins that we have, that we lay in front of him and that we repent of, and yet even through all of that, he loves us enough to forgive us and to be with us and to guide us on our path? Is that an intimacy that we are grateful for as well? And the people believed after talking to her, yes, and after her witness. But then it states that they began to change and they were telling her that their faith was now coming due to them talking to Christ. And his word is what was saving them. 
And if you think about it, how often do we continually see that throughout the Gospels? We've been going through it together. John is constantly showing us that, yes, sometimes Christ is the sower and the tender, but in almost every single example, he is the reaper of the harvest. We think about the disciples in the beginning and John telling them to go and follow Christ. And we think about <clears throat> Andrew going and getting Peter and Philip going and getting Nathaniel and how they came by word of mouth. And then when they met Christ, their lives changed. Think about Nicodemus coming and meeting him and the Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman who had only a slight understanding of the Messiah comes in contact with Christ and her life completely changes. And if you think about society and in the culture that we live in, there are many, many people around us who are almost like this woman. They have never gone to church. They've never read the Bible, but they've lived around all of us. And they kind of have this slight idea of Christ and who he is. And that is something that we can use to talk to them about to begin a conversation about a relationship with him. Now, also notice in verse 38, when Christ is talking about the harvest, he points out something unique about it. He states that others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In verse 38, he states that. Now, a website that I often use if I have a theological question is gotquestions.org. If you go there... You can go to the search bar, type in a question. It'll bring up several articles about the topic at hand. And it's at least a good starting place. And I was looking at the sower and the reaper. And one of the articles was talking about this very verse and the fact that Christ is pointing out that oftentimes the sower, the tender, and the reaper will be completely different people. He talks about the sower and the reaper rejoicing together. And he talks about how you have come in and entered into their labor and you are reaping the benefits of it. Oftentimes, the heart of man is hard and it is not an immediate change. And so it is very laborious. The the harvest is labor intensive. It is not immediate. And I think that that's something that maybe with our modern technology we've lost track of is the fact that harvest is not immediate. You may spend 10 or 12 hours out in a hay field, and yes, that's hard work. But imagine 150 years ago going out there with a group of men in a scythe. That's very different. Or, you know, uh, Caitlin and I, we timed ourselves one year in digging up potatoes and getting sweet corn out of our garden. And it took the Stutzmans about the same amount of time to go through 76 acres with all their combines. It's just, it is so fast now, but the harvest is labor-intensive. You think about what they would have done in these days from sowing the seeds to tending them by hand to doing all the care by hand to then harvesting it to then grinding the wheat and going through all that work just to make a few loaves of bread. It was incredibly intensive. But as you, as you think about that, also notice that Christ starts this out by stating that he has bread. He has a bread that sustains him. It's not a physical bread. And when you think about living water and the bread that is the will of the Father, it makes me think back to the Israelites. And when they were wandering through the desert, through the unknown, and God was supplying them with water and with quail and with manna, the same as he does us. And in a way, that is almost what witnessing or what being a part of the harvest is. It is the joy and the sustenance that Christ gives us in the living water and in the bread of the Father's will. And we are taking that 
And we are sharing that with those that we are talking to. We are sharing that to those with those that we come in contact with. And it's not to say that we take these and we change man's heart. We can never change man's heart. In Ezekiel 36, it states that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone. So that is an act of God to change a man's heart. But to show the lost world that the hope that you see within us, this living water and this bread, this substance that takes us through all the trials in life, this is what we have. We have Christ. And I would like to offer this to you and tell you about it. Because the harvest is here. And we did say that part of what makes the harvest so hard is that it is so labor intensive. But we must understand that for men to begin seeking a majority of the time, they have to be broken. All control has to be removed from man for man to seek his savior in almost all instances. We have to be in war or in famine or in political unrest or unable to get food or in a market crash or whatever it is, to where total control of our lives is bleeding away from us, and then we begin to seek Christ. And oftentimes, we seek those who we know have the hope, the hope that they are lacking. And the reason why that is so intense is because if food is hard, or there is political unrest, or the market is crashing, or whatever, we live in this world. We are feeling the effects of all of those things The same as the unbeliever is, but the difference is that we must work even harder because while we bear what they are bearing, we must also come beside them and sow the seeds of hope and try to reap the benefits for the kingdom. So we, in God's kingdom, must press on even harder. But we must remember that the source of the hope is an unchanging, unwavering, never-ending, eternal God. The same God that we memorize Verses about when we are children is the same God that we will pray to on our deathbeds. The same Christ that we will see when we get to heaven. He is the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, and he is our God as well. He is unchanging, and he is unwavering. And that is what a lost world sees in us when they see us in these trying times. And yes, we are stressed, but there is still an essence of peace within us. Because humanity can never give itself hope. Only Jesus Christ can give humanity hope. And that is something that even the unbeliever recognizes when he begins to seek. And so the challenge to us today would be to ask yourselves, are you ready to be part of the harvest? Do you have the courage to sow? Do you have the courage to throw it out there in some place that you're a Christian, even if it comes back on you in some type of a backlash that You do not want in your life an unneeded stress. Are you willing to sow the seeds that you know the source of hope? Do you have the endurance to tend? If you sow a seed or someone else has and someone is growing and the the Holy Spirit is working on them, do you have the endurance to work a 10-hour day and yet come beside them and have a Bible study with them once a week? Or to call them on the phone and talk to them about what they're going through. And to go and get them and bring them to church if their cars broke down. Whatever it is, do you have the endurance for that? And do you have the strength to reap for the kingdom whenever the time is at hand? And I believe that 
if all aspects of the harvest are done in love and for the sake of the kingdom, you will have the courage, the endurance, and the strength needed to have the harvest for this kingdom of God. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for everything that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you continue to help us be a witness for you, to be a light in the darkness. Whatever uncertainties may lay ahead, Lord, in our lives or in our nation or whatever it may be, when we hear the cry of those who are seeking for hope and security, may we have the courage to say that we know the source and that the source is you. I pray that you continue to bless us in the days ahead and that you continue to guide us as we move forward. Amen.